You're listening to SAS Nordic, the sassiest podcast in the Nordics. Hi, I'm Daniel. And I'm Thomas. And we are experienced SaaS professionals that are curious about how other successful SaaS companies go to market, scale, build winning teams and great products. Join us on our journey as we speak to Nordic SaaS leaders trying to get hold of their secret sauce. And today's guest is Emil Efrem, CEO at Neo4j. So so I think there's only two things that are certain in life, right? Um, One is we're all going to die. And the second one is we're all going to compete with Amazon. And I'm not even sure about the former, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know? So welcome once again to SAS Nordic. And this time uh, we have a Swedish unicorn as a guest here. We're going to talk to Emil Efrem, the CEO of Neo4j. And for me personally, this is going to be a really exciting episode because our paths crossed around 20 years ago. And I won't spoil anything, but uh, I'm really interested in their journey. I think it's a really exciting journey. And obviously, I happen to know the backstory here. And uh, I got to throw a jab at Thomas here. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) Thomas and Emil 20 years ago shared an office and and shared some of the uh, ideas that they were working on to a certain extent. And now Emil (laughs) is the CEO of of a unicorn. And and Thomas, here you have to hang out with me. But I mean, your career is pretty nice as well. Yeah, (laughs) I I don't complain. I don't complain. But excited about this episode. Emil is truly inspiring. Uh, He has a big passion for technology. It's going to be some more tech talk than than maybe in some other episodes we're going to have. So... um, I hope you will enjoy that, and um, but he will also share some, in some cases, controversial opinions, perhaps. So um, buckle up and uh, be prepared for uh, a ride that I hope you will remember. So today we have a very special guest, and I'm super excited to introduce to you Emil Efrem, co-founder and CEO of Neo4j. Welcome to SAS Nordic. Thanks. Welcome, Emil. It's it's so exciting to have you here. I know that you and Thomas go way, way, way back. Decades. <laughs> Decades. Yeah, we're going to dive into that because I'm super curious. We haven't had contact for quite some time, so I'm really, really interested in, in your journey here. But before we dive into that, could you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Um, I grew up as a developer, um, as a software engineer. Um, you know, I uh, started programming computers as a kid of course got into it through gaming is there any other way yeah i know that i think that is <laughs> that is the early day right and you know did the whole kind of it was called the demo scene back then in the early days of the commodore amiga i was an atari guy oh there you go yeah i did the commodore 64 but then i went the atari path then you went there okay yeah yeah okay the, 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 there was a there was a fork in the road there right yeah it, it was yeah Right, and I was just about to say that probably explains a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, then, and but then like the the broader PC, including the Mac, right? Then all kind of dragged us back into the same fold in the end, didn't it? Right in the yeah. in the in the nineties, and and I really grew up kind of in the as as a Linux kid, if you will, right? So um, you know, I was super early adopter of, of Linux, ninety two, right? So mm. this is before any of the even popular Linux distributions even existed. I used Yggdrasil, which is, is a very obscure first ever distro of Linux, right? <laughs> and um, and this is, I mean, I guess this is the SAS Nordic podcast, right? And this is obviously yeah. like something for, for us to be proud of here in the, the Nordics, kind of the, the, the entire open source 
and Linux kind of founding moments that we yeah. that, that happened here, right? Absolutely. And Daniel was a sports guy, so he has no idea what we're talking about. Yeah, no idea what we're talking about here, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. Hey, hey, hey! I also had a Commodore sixty four. Careful. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> sure. I didn't know. You played track and field on it. That's right. So, uh, but but then you know, and so so grew up on on Linux, uh, gaming, did an online text based role play you know, role role. But what do we role playing game? Yeah, it's called Muds, right? Um, in the in the mid nineties, uh, it was one of the most popular games on the internet for a while. Uh, it was co-founded by myself and uh, a friend of mine in Lu- Luxembourg. Your game was one of the most popular. It was one of the most popular games on the internet at peak. We had about between hundred and hundred and fifty players at the same time. <laughs> yeah. So this is like early nineties, right? <laughs> you know. So it was. These were these were different different times than uh, than than today. Um, and then you know, randomly got into startups. It was kind of one of those kind of obscure things, right? Where I was, you know, drafted my military service, right? I guess if for those of you, like most people are here in, in the Nordics, right? So that happened. It was mandatory back in the in the nineties, right? Um, and then, uh, so I I couldn't go to college that year, and so I had a gap year. Basically, got out in like October or November, right? And so I had I had to fill it up with something. Found a local, you know, small company. Uh, that was where I could work as a programmer, um, except they didn't call it a small company. They had a different term for it. They called themselves a startup. Okay. okay. And I'm like, what do you mean a startup? <laughs> like, what are you we're like? Oh, you're you're a tiny company. That's what you meant. That it's just another fancy t- term for it. Um, and and that got me. You know, I got the bug there because it was angel backed and had some institutional money uh, as, as as well. Okay. And. One thing led to the other, and that's what eventually got me to to uh, co-found Neo4j, which I'm, I'm sure we're going to talk about. Exactly. And this startup, was it the company that, when I met you, that you were working on? Yes, that's exactly right. Okay. Because I was sort of in the same situation. You know, I at uh, around 2000, I was at FramFab, and, you know, the whole bubble bursted, and I ended up on this small uh, company, or I mean startup as well. And, you know, we did sort of a web to print solution. We did business cards and stationery. And eventually there was some new people moving in, in the very end of the corridor in a very small room. I don't know if you were two or three people in that room. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And, and I remember, you know, sometimes we talked about what you were doing and what we were doing, and there were some touch points. You were doing something like a digital asset. Yeah. Me- media asset management. Media asset management. And quite early, I think also, I, I probably didn't yeah, that's right. know so much of it. And, yeah. and uh, I know also that at one point you explained a little bit about, you know, challenges around when you search for images and you sort of draw a tree, I think, on a paper explaining, you know, how, how this could be done in in a smart way. And, and I guess that sort of ended up with what you're doing now, right? I'm still doing basically that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> 15 years later, I'm still doing that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But, you know, some say that you shouldn't regret things in life. Uh, but... I don't really agree. I think there are things that you could feel that you are regretting. Uh, once in high school, I was uh, had the had the opportunity to join a band, and, and I didn't. And, and I feel that that's something that I regret. 
And also, at one point, I remember you were featured on, um, I think, IDG, the website, talking about web services. Uh, so you sort of became a face of web services that was very new. And my idea was that I should ask you to teach me everything about web service, and we never got to it. So that is one of my regrets. It's actually on my long list of regrets that I didn't <laughs> learn web services from, from email. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And, and, you know, eventually uh, I quit my company. And as far as I know, you were still working in that room in the end of the corridor and then I don't, I don't think maybe we have met, maybe we ran into each other uh, during the years. But then uh, this February, just before COVID, we, we met each other in a sort of a coffee house in Kleppen, going skiing with our families. So we just, you know, very briefly reconnected. Yes. It wasn't the time and place to get the full story, what happened. So, but here we are. Here we are. So, Emil. What happened? <laughs> what the hell happened? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a good question. It's a it's a big question uh, covering ten, fifteen years of of ground in one answer. So maybe I'll not. I'll do the very high level stuff, right? So, so at that media asset management company, you know, uh, as as you'll recall, Thomas, I was the I was the CTO there, and. You know, pre-bubble, we had a team of about 20 engineers. Post-bubble, I don't know how big the team was, maybe five, six on the on the technical side, something like that. Okay. But we, but but pre-bubble, you know, so like uh, 2000, 2001, and so on and so forth, we were building out this media asset management solution, which was very, it had a very modern architecture at the time. It was called ASP. Not as in Microsoft ASP, but as in application service provider, right. which was the the term in the in the first IT bubble for SaaS, right? That's what we today called SaaS, right? Okay. And so basically, the idea was, hey, I'm not going to build this thing and ship it to you on a floppy disk or on a CD, right? No, no, no. you're going to access the software through the web browser. ASP, right? Right. Um, obviously, you know that thing ended up taking off after a while, but it, it was it was uh, tough to have that business model and that delivery model in the late '90s. Uh, but one of the one of the technical consequences of that was that we had a bunch of customers that all believed they had their own system. Like when we all log on to our favorite SaaS services today, it's branded your own data. Like it's in Gmail, it has you know, the company logo up there and all that stuff, right? Mm. But it, even though it's branded that way, it's actually running on the same system, right? So that's what we today would be calling a multi-tenant SaaS application, right? Which meant that we had to have, we had to manage really big scale and we have to manage a lot of users at the same time. And we had content that and data that was very messy and connected Right, because we were talking about media files that connected to other media files that lived in files and folders, and we had to have security permissions they connected to other users and the groups that they belong to. This is all like a big, hairy, messy data structure, and we put that we put it into what everyone else was using in terms of databases, which is a normal Oracle database or an IBM database, right? Um, and that is. A great piece of technology, useful for a lot of different things, but ultimately it has a tabular view of the world. 
and that tabular view of the world is fantastic if you want to store payroll, right? <laughs> payroll is very tabular, like first name, last name, I don't know, title, salary, done. <laughs> All rows look exactly the same. You can, you, can, you can just visualize that. That's a tabular structure. And if you want to calculate average salary, awesome. It's lightning fast. If you want to average salary of everyone called Daniel, that's also super fast, right? But if your data is this thing is connected to that thing, which is connected to that thing, it's rapidly evolving, it's complex, it's chaotic, it's like the, it's like the world, right? Okay. That ends up being a really poor fit with, with these tables. And so that's the problem that we, that we ran into. And, you know, half of my team spent most of their time just fighting against, you know, the, the tabular database, trying to squeeze this chaotic, you know, world into square static tables. And so that's ultimately what led to the idea, right? And I'll, I'll, I'll stop, I'll stop right there. But that's how we got the, the, the idea that, hey, maybe this is not the only way to work, uh, work with data. And that's the, that's the, the foundation then of, of Neo4j, the company. Okay, but did you start then at the quite early point building some own technology to to store the data, and what did that look like at that point in time? Yeah, this is this is an unusual thing, right? So we we had a CEO. I was in this, I was the CTO, right? But we had a, a CEO who was very open minded and gave us uh, a very long leash. I don't know, Thomas, if you ever ran into Stefan Stefan Wind the the founder CEO of that company. Yeah, yeah, several times. Yeah, yeah. And and he he was very good about giving us a very long leash and say that hey, if you believe this is the right thing to do, then then go for it. He was he's is very wired to do kind of moonshot ideas type of a thing, right? And so we did what everyone would consider to be a crazy thing, which is we said, "Hey, you know what? We like those other databases, the tabular databases, right? There's a lot of stuff that they have great query languages, they're stable, they're performant, they, they're robust, like they have all kinds of amazing characteristics. It's just that the building blocks, we don't like the product surface, the building blocks, right? What if we could build exactly that type of database, but instead of that tabular abstraction, what if we have a network view, right? What if we say that the world actually doesn't just consist of tables, but it consists of nodes that are connected to other nodes, right? Which form a network inspired by how the human brain works, right? With neurons connected to other neurons through synapses, right? Um, what if we have that and we just make that, the database store that? So let's build that from scratch, right? And so we had this project initially with a team in India. I commuted to Bombay for a year. That probably predated when when we met, right? Yeah. Um, and then after that, myself and, and Johan primarily, my, my co-founder of Neo4j, um, just spent a bunch of time trying to build a database uh, from 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 scratch. Clearly, this turned out to be a, a fantastic idea, the, the the node mentality and so on. But how did you convince yourself and your coworkers initially? How did you prove that the ideas that we have they're the right ideas and they're going to be perceived as the right ideas by the people using this and buying this? Yeah. So 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 two two things there. One was we were the people using it and buying it. Right. One of the things that when I when I talk to early founders, the, the one thing that I always say, you're gonna get all kinds of advice from everyone. You should focus more on this or focus more on that. Ignore most of it, right? Do what's right for you. But the one thing though is over index on customer empathy. Like you 
there's no way that you can understand your customers too much. Right. You can you can do too much PR. You can invest too much in the product. You can you can surely invest too early in sales. There's all kinds of ways you can do too much in the early days of a startup. You cannot understand your customers too much, right? And that of course helps when you are the initial customer. Then everyone has a lot of empathy for themselves. Right. In fact, that the definition of empathy is having it for someone else, right? And so when you're building for yourself, that really helps with understanding, you know, what that product should look like. So that's the first piece of the answer. I think the second piece is that in the IT bubble when we had, you know, investor funding and resources and you, you Thomas you mentioned from fab right, which is one of these kind of hipster IT consultant you know that were very hyped in here in, in Scandinavia right um, in those eras in that era we were able to shave off uh, uh, some bandwidth and a small team for writing a POC around this which implemented the the product surface the way we wanted it but with a really crappy implementation so the engine was really poor but the flip side of that was that though that we were able to use that product and and play around with it and we saw that the surface the model was just magical it was amazing like if only it worked it didn't really work that initial poc didn't work too well but we saw that hey if we could work this way with data that's just magical yeah so you mentioned you were your first you were your own customers to start with. So yes. when did you decide that this was something that could help other customers? We always, internally, we always had the idea that we built for something greater. And we were super arrogant about it too. <laughs> like we said, we said things like, um, the world deserves this <laughs> <laughs> and, and things like that, right? Because we always felt that look, on, on some, some level, uh, like we actually had, we built for ourselves in the small, but we actually had like from a big picture, we actually had a fairly strategic view on it, right? It was very simplistic, but it was something like the following. Like if you imagine a simple chart, X and Y chart axis, like and the X axis is time, right? And the y-axis is how connected is the world, right? And then you can say it's the year, whatever, 2000. Like, where are we? we we're on some level on that y-axis. As time moves on, is that chart going to go up or down, right? And once you've for formulated the problem in that way, it is trivially obvious that that line will only go up the world will only become increasingly connected, yeah. right? There's just no doubt. And even in 2000, that was true. Like for sure in 2020, we, we know that. Like I mean, we're all carrying multiple phones or like my car has 100, over 190 microprocessors that are all wired and connected. You know, I have three SIM cards built into my, into my car, right? And, and so on and so forth. Like social media, the world is becoming more connected, right? But what's interesting about that then is that, and everyone would kind of trivially agree with that today, I think. But what's interesting though, is that the consequence of that is that information, what is information? What is data? Well, data is, it describes the world, something that is happening in the world. And so that as the world is becoming increasingly connected, so will data, right? And that, which is a more subtle insight, right? If you take that, you realize that okay, we're building for ourselves today. So at the very least, we have one customer ourselves, right? right. <laughs> and we felt like probably other people have exactly the problem we have today, right? There, there's going to be other, maybe there's five, maybe there's 50, maybe there's 500. Like we didn't know. 
But the one thing we felt very confident about was that every day that moves on, more people will have this problem. Yeah. So we felt like we had the wind in our back. We were on the right side of history, you know, from that perspective. And at that point, like that gives you real strength of convictions. And then it's just a matter of time, right? So with that strength of your conviction and with patience, right? Yeah. Then you can really get some someplace. And you quickly became the poster boy for the no SQL movement, right? You, you saw your picture everywhere. It was a big hype. And I think it still is. You're, you're still some kind of guru for, for this internationally. So, so how did that happen? When did that catch on? Yeah, it, that, that was a huge inflection point uh, for, for the company um, in, in many ways. So, so what ended up happening, so, so we built this again for ourselves with that conviction that over time, more people will need this. Will everyone need it eventually? Who knows? Like, will a thousand, ten thousand, hundred thousand, a million, ten million? That we didn't know, but like every day, more and more people would want it, right? So that was great, right? But then, you know, in uh, no one else was talking about databases. No one else was talking about databases, right? At that point, and what ended up happening as we and as we started building this thing, all of a sudden, people started thinking about, started talking about the value of data. And data at this point was something that was very much relegated to the people like myself who grew up in a basement attached to a keyboard. Like my childhood, I was attached to two keyboards, either the computer keyboard or the piano keyboard. That's basically what I did, right? It's so beautiful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And 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 that's the only people who talked about data were the ultra geeks like like myself, right? <laughs> but then mid-2000s, all of a sudden other people outside of the core alpha geeks started talking about data. McKinsey started talking about data. Uh, geeks got sexy. <laughs> yeah. Harvard Business Review talked about big data, right? Data is the new oil. And slowly but surely, the observation that every company has to become a software company and every company has to be able to manage data or if not, they're going to be outcompeted any vertical. They're going to be outcompeted by a company who is a software company who can manage data, right? That realization started seeping out into the world. And all of a sudden, people became much more interested in data, not just the, the, the core geeks. And then concurrent with all this, we have a big trend with, with the big web giants, right? So these are the Amazons and the Googles of the world, where they all of a sudden internally, several years earlier, had concluded that they couldn't use the off-the-shelf database technologies that existed. They couldn't use Oracle. They couldn't use Microsoft SQL Service. They couldn't, they couldn't use IBM's you know, database products. They were forced to build their own. Why? Because they were working on data at a scale that no one had seen before. They were living five to 10 years in the future compared to the rest of the world. And they started talking about it, mid-2000s, late-2000s, right? They started saying, so Amazon wrote a paper called DynamoDB, where they said, you know what, folks, like, we didn't want to build a database. Like, we want to sell books. This is Amazon, right? Like, late-2000s, right? We want to sell books. We don't want to build our own database because it sucks. It's really hard. But we had to. We were forced to, right? And then Google came out just six m months later and said, you know, and these are academic papers, Right. And they said, um, you know, exactly the same thing. We were forced to build our own database, right? Right. And so that triggered this movement where all of a sudden people started experimenting with new types of, 
of databases. And that culminated in summer of 2009, where the NOSQL, the NoSQL movement was, was formed, which was just one of those happenstance kind of weird things. There was a one-day conference actually organized by a fellow Swede, Johan Oskarsson, who, 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 lives in, who at the time lived in Silicon Valley, organized a one-day conference. Conference probably, it's a meetup, like it was free, but there was like 14 or 15 database companies there, new, not even companies, new database projects there. And they talked about this emerging world of, we're not going to use the standard tabular database for, for everything. It was called NoSQL. And that just exploded. It took off, right? And everyone started talking about that. Every single developer conference now had a NoSQL track. There were dedicated NoSQL conferences. And we sat there, you know, basically in a basement in Malmö, right? <laughs> and we saw this, this happen. We were invited to that first NoSQL conference, right? The one summer of 2009, but we couldn't afford the plane ticket. Wow. <laughs> right? Wow. We couldn't afford the, you know, the $2,000 plane ticket. We couldn't go, right? But then when that happened, we just felt, all right, we have to be here. We have to be part of this because we, for at that time, we'd been working for five, six years on this internal database. And the world had completely ignored us. And then now, all of a sudden, the focal point of our industry was on innovation and data. And so we, we, we did a lot of work around uh, participating in the NoSQL community. I keynoted that we, we ended up actually landing funding from, from VCs between the time when the first NoSQL conference happened and when the second one, which was just a few months later. But then we had landed funding, you know, so I had, you know, a bank account where I could, so I could eat which was helpful because <laughs> that's basically you know where we were at the time. We had no money whatsoever, right? But could then also actually fly out and we sponsored that when I keynoted it and we talked about graph databases and, and so on and so forth. So that was a big, big uh, inflection point for, for us as a company. SAS Nordic is growing, and now we're launching a unique peer-to-peer -peer community on Slack. My name is Nina, I'm the SAS Nordic Community Manager, and I would like to invite you to join this exciting forum. This will be the place to network, collaborate, and share knowledge with other SAS professionals in the Nordics. The SAS Nordic community is free and open to everyone working in Nordic SAS companies. Come join us at sasnordic.com. We can't wait to have you on board. I want to come back a little bit to your initial statement here when you said uh, the very bold statement, the world deserved this. You guys were convinced that the world deserved this and and boy, were you right. Uh, but I, I wanted to ask you a little bit, um, being a sales guy like I am, how do you go from this internal conviction in that room, five guys that are super convinced the world needs this, everybody needs this. How did you go about to land your first external customer, your first paying customer? Yeah, it, it's a it's a it's a very relevant question. Um, we I think did it. Um, we we navigated that part well. We talked before about kind of mistakes, and there's there's plenty to choose from. Um, I think we did that one actually pretty well, and we did that by for the initial few customers, uh, it was basically professional services deals. So these were, were deals. There's some kind of spectrum here, right? Where it's like the, what, the pure thing that you want, the most valuable thing is someone to buy your product 100% for the value of the product, right? And 
nothing because of the people involved, right? Right. You know, that's kind of all the way out to the right. Then you've proven that, okay, this is completely repeatable. We can scale this globally, just just put money behind it and we're going to be able to scale this, right? And then you have all the way out to the other end of the extreme, which is basically they're buying professional services. They're buying consultants, right? And we started out on that spectrum very much towards, you know, we got embedded in projects where they bought probably 80% us, right? Because that early initial team, you remember us, Thomas, right? We were very geeky. Yeah. But also, candidly, really, really good, like technologically, right? In terms of just pure um, engineering, raw, you know, CPU cycles. We were really good at that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, the Minecraft vibes almost. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it, exactly, uh, you know. right? And so, so being able to sell that was not hard. And then as part of that, we, of course, implemented these projects with our own technology, right? And then over time for the, so, so that's how we landed the first few deals, right? We, we only chose projects where we felt that our technology would be a good fit, right? So we were very intellectually honest, uh, you know, in, in, in that way, right? But then over the course of the first probably five or seven customers, the proportion of how much they bought um, that was because of consulting just became much, much less. Right. So we walked into the first few deals, there was like 90, 80, 90% was us the, as consultants, and like 20% was that cool technology. And then for sure, by deal 10, it was 90% because graph databases are a fantastic fit for this. And 10% because they had confidence that we as, as professional services delivery people could implement on it, right? And so that meant that we we managed to, and I see a lot of companies that get, that get stuck in this, right? right? They look at those first deals they're typically very big. Like for example, in the first year, we we got in about like five hundred thousand dollars worth of revenue, right? Which is very significant, right? When you are a few, just a few people, right? Right. But that was all consulting, right? It was like ninety percent or something like that consulting. Then it's very easy to get okay. I I can for sure repeat this, right? Yeah. And then I have you know two, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollar deal sizes all of a sudden, right? That's fantastic. Let's repeat this. Except in reality, you've turned yourself into a consulting organization, right? And there's there's no repeatability in that. And we were able to stay away from that. We're a little bit purist there, which I think was very helpful. And so by the time we got to that 10th customer or so, our handholding involved was, was very small. I think that's, that's fascinating. And I was a little bit curious about, did you guys do some kind of a ICP exercise defining that now that we're going to go out to the world, this is the ideal customer? W was there a conscious decision or it was a little bit, uh, no. call it a coincidence, who you landed initially? No, this comes back to us building for ourselves. We had a very deep empathy for how to communicate the value because, so we built this database, right? And and what's interesting about, oh, there are so many things that are interesting about databases. <laughs> but one one of them is that you don't sell into a direct business problem. Right. And so when you sell into the enterprise, when I say the enterprise, I mean big companies. And so for us, that means a billion and above, like real billion and above in revenue, yeah. like customers of, of that size. Right. So and, and was this the start in initially from the get go? Um, this was the we knew that database companies, the way that they made their money was from the global 2000. Right. But we felt that it was really an, any type of company. Right. But generally speaking, when you sell into the enterprise, 
you want to solve a business problem. Right. You don't want to solve a technical problem. You want to solve a business problem, right? You want to solve a fraud detection problem. You want to solve like, hey, I'm going to drive up online sales through better recommendations. Exactly. Right? That Those are business problems, right? With a database, you never directly do that, right? Like you may be embedded in a project that solves a business problem, right? But you don't directly solve a business problem. The problem you solve is a very technical problem around data is connected and you don't want to do joints in your relational database. It's like, it's it's very kind of technical stuff that, that the value prop is very, very, is very technical, right? So the benefit that we had is that we were the direct audience for that. So we had a very deep empathy for how to articulate the value to folks like, like ourselves. And therefore, we weren't forced to specify an ideal customer profile to our marketing team that could then go out and repeat that. No, we just, we went open source. So we gave away our software for free, which is an entire different, you could probably do a separate <laughs> podcast just on that, right? Yeah. Um, and, and that created this community of people where the entire focus was on just articulating the value of it and get them to use it. Right? And then we trusted that over time, we were going to be able to monetize that, right? So it's a free, today we would think of that as a freemium model, right? And so that is what the entire focus was. And it was very intuitive rather than kind of prescriptive and, and professional, if you will. Yeah. So we have talked about different kinds of databases. You mentioned relational database. Great if you want to know the average salary of, of Daniels, which of course is very high. And uh, <laughs> you mentioned the graph databases, but uh, there are also document databases such as MongoDB and, uh, and, and sort of similar. So what are the different databases, the other ones good for, uh, like a document database versus a graph database, for instance? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's an, also an entire podcast. <laughs> okay, you get two, three sentences. Okay, I'll, I'll do, I, I can promise two, three sentences, but I'll, I'll keep it very short. I think I'll, I'll up-level the question. Okay. The big shift, the big trend that happened around the, the the previous decade, right? So 09 to 10, the shift to the previous decade. The, the big trend there was that we as an industry went from this, old, this singular model where like if you have data, you would always put it in a relational database. And then the question was only which vendor? Is it the Microsoft one or the IBM one or the Oracle? And that was the only question. It was not a type of database. And what happened in, in those SQL um, movement really ushered in this era was that from now on there's going to be multiple types of databases and so 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 your job then dear architect in a new project right your job is to figure out what's the shape of your data like for this particular project what data are you are you working with and then look at that shape of that data and then you match that with a database right and sometimes that is that you're building a new payroll thing right where it's like the data is very tabular perfect then for God's sake, you should use the relational database. Just go ahead and use that because it's proven, people know it, all that good stuff, right? Sometimes you're going to have basically tall and skinny tables, right? And then it's like a key value store is a great example for that. Like, hey, there's just a key and a value, very rapid access to that. Sometimes you're going to have big, messy data that is complex and changing all the time and it's connected awesome, you should use a graph database for that. So that's kind of the higher level view is that we shifted from this kind of monolithic world where we all used one type of system into this more pluralistic world where there's multiple types of, of, of databases. 
But again, what, what is the difference between a, a document database and a graph database? Yeah, so, so the document database then centers around, as, as, as in the name, around these documents, basically where it's like, hey, you know, uh, I have a person and that person has first name, last name, age, and that's it. I'm going to store that. And then there's another person and there's a car and then there's a house. And you store all that and it's super simple. And you can express that in... For those of you who are technical uh, listeners, like you can express that in JSON, which is this format that any front-end developer would know, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's very simple to do that, right? And so that's so that's kind of the, the document databases. Yeah, but the relations is not that easy to to work it, with. That. Exactly. Yeah, okay. But if 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 that person, what 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 is the example idea? I said persons and cars, right? If that yeah. person is owning a car, then you have to store that. Um, the car license plate that I own is the following, right? And then you have to have a license plate property in that car thing. Okay. And that really what you're trying to describe there is a relationship between them. It's a connection between the two. But you have kind of can express that, but it's really awkward, right? In a graph database, then you have these relationships and they're front and center. And you can say you can, you can store the, the person, you can store the car, but more importantly, you can also store how they relate, right? And so that's the the high order difference between between the two of them. Really exciting and interesting story. <laughs> no, you didn't you didn't sound excited. You you don't need to say that. You can go directly into the other stuff that you are really interested in instead. Not interesting at all. Not fascinating at all. <laughs> okay. 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 Now it's your show, Daniel. Go into the business side of it. Uh, for people like myself that are on, on the go-to-market side, interested in sales, and uh, I guess, Emil, it's fair to say that you guys were a born global. Uh, very quickly on, you had customers all over the place here. Uh, and today you're a unicorn. Uh, for me, what I'm interested about is like, how did you take this Swedish small company and had the ability to sell... Uh, predominantly in the U.S., we've seen so many companies not have the ability to, to scale. So can you talk a little bit about your position today in the market, how you go to market, how you sell this, if there's a difference between the different regions? There's a lot of question in one question, but I think you, you see where I'm getting at. Yeah, yeah. So, so let, me, let me latch on to a, a few things and then let's double click on the ones that are, that are interesting, right? So just to give folks a sense, right? Today we are... I don't actually know exactly how many we are, somewhere between 350 and 400 people, right? right. Uh, but growing very fast. Um, we are spread out approximately 50-50 between North America and Europe, right? And so um, the biggest office in, in Europe um, is here in Malmö, Sweden. Uh, but we also have an office in London, in Munich, and so on and so forth. And then we're headquartered in Silicon Valley, right? So in San Mateo, in, right at the heart of... Uh, of Silicon Valley, but we also have an office in, in, in Boston, right? All our engineering is done in Europe, um, and then most of leadership is in Silicon Valley, um, and then go-to-market is spread out in, in both North America and, and, and Europe. So the, the, the local offices are predominantly called sales and marketing offices? Yes, except, of course, the, the local Malmo office, which is predominantly in, in, in engineering, right? Right. And so, so that's kind of just the status quo as of where we are today. In terms of the journey, um, we were lucky early enough with a few things, right? So one is we were able to attract really, really strong engineering talent here in Malmo, right? We had an authentic connection to Sweden because we grew up in Sweden. We were Swedes, right? But we also rapidly hired in in London and had had a very good kind of global I was I was a speaker at developer conferences predating this right and 
And so we had a name very early on in what I call alpha geek circuits, right? So through that, we were able to to hire really, really strong world-class engineering talent. And then two things I think happened in terms of getting established in the US. I decided to move there. So we 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 kept engineering here in, in Sweden, and then I moved to Silicon Valley in 2011 when we raised our A round of, of financing. I also hired really early on, I hired a super strong local COO, so chief operating officer, uh, which actually happened to be another fellow Swede by the name of Lars Nordvold, who at the time had lived in Silicon Valley for 15, 20 years or something like that. So it was deeply entrenched in the valley, but it was Swedish, so he could understand the Swedish mentality, right? Right. And we built up the management team in Silicon Valley, the go-to-market, and 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 so on and so forth, right? And so very early on, we Im- like we got embedded into the company this this dual cultures, right? We we talk about it internally as a as a Silicon Valley company or an American company with a Swedish soul. Right, right. Where we try to take kind of the best of stereotypically American culture and the best of stereotypically Swedish culture and merge it into in, in, into one. Yeah, and I've actually had a, a similar experience. Clearly, not the same outcome like like you've had, but uh, in in a previous life, I had an opportunity to move a German-based company to uh, California, and, and quickly we realized that the German way of doing business is is not necessarily a one-to-one match. So. It, it was a difficult journey for us to to adjust not only the go-to-market approach, but we also had to uh, speak differently. We had to uh, present the product in a different way. So there's a lot of lessons learned for me in that exercise. And we see a lot of Nordic companies today flying start in the Nordics, but they're struggling to get the same success in the U.S. What are the, some of the lessons learned that, that you have from this exercise, something that you can share with people that are about to embark on this journey, taking their Nordic success to the US? Yeah, I, so so look, my, my candid view on, on this is that when it comes to the go-to-market, right, it, it, I, I'm not emotional about things like this. I'm not religious about things like this. It's very clear that who knows where we're going to be 20, 30 years from now. It's very clear today in enterprise software, North America is the most important market in the world. There's just no, there's nothing else that even comes close to it, right? So North America is the is the most valuable and important market. It's also the fastest one to get to. Like Europe moves slower, it, it's more conservative, right? It takes longer and trends you look usually, not always, but usually start in North America and then move over here, right? And so to me, if you, if you truly have worldwide global ambitions and you take that into account, you realize that if you were forced to stand crack in priorities, it's much more important to be successful in the US than anywhere else in the world, right? Right. And so then you need to take the consequences of that and you need to realize that if there's ever a conflict in culture on the go-to-market side between, let's say, the American way of doing things and the European way of doing things, if those are gross generalizations, right? But if there's ever is a conflict, of course, the American way of doing things should win. Like you need to become an American go-to-market company. Like if you want to be successful globally, you have to do that, right? That means fly over, move to New York, move to Boston, move to Silicon Valley, hire your leaders there, 
and make that your sales culture, make that your marketing culture, right? Now, I think it is different on the engineering side because there's nothing in my experience that tells me that an engineer in Silicon Valley is better than an engineer in London or an engineer in Zurich or an engineer in in Malmo, right? But on the go-to-market side, I do think that the American way of running things on balance is combination of more efficient, right? And it is more appropriate for the most valuable market, right? Right. And I think that when I talk to kind of SaaS, not even SaaS, Nordic founders, I don't think they see it that way. Many, many of them, right? And so I think that's that's a big one. And we we did that. Now, we had this fortune of Lars being Swedish, right? So he knew deeply like the, the Swedish way of doing things, the European way of doing things. So he could speak to it credibly. I'm being a European origin. So, so the number one to the number two in the company were European expats living in Silicon Valley, right? And so then we could we could find that balance. And I can what I just said. If an American said that, everyone would react to it. It's like this is American hegemon. Like this is like this is ridiculous and you know cultural imperialism and, and whatnot, <laughs> right? But 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 I can say it because because I'm from here and I could say it internally too, right? And then that doesn't mean that always the American way of doing things is the right way to do it. But I think you need to get your priorities right. And and if you're like almost no company end up having like a global fantastic outcome if they are the the leader in Europe, but not the leader in the US. Right. But the but the vice versa can be true. Like the leader in North America then ends up being the, the leader globally. That happens all the time. So those are my, my controversial views on, on this topic. Yeah, yeah, it hurts. It hurts <laughs> to hear it. <laughs> Is it fair to say then that a, a piece of advice would be that when you get things off the ground in the Nordics, be bold and don't think of UK or Germany of your next market. Think of the US as soon as possible. Yeah. I, I believe that to be true. Also, the earlier you can do it, the easier it is. Right. Right. Yeah. And 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 that's always the case with the, those these types of things. Now, the flip side of that is that if you do it without product market fit, then all of a sudden, if you are nine time zones away from where the product is being built, that introduces a huge amount of latency and a huge amount of inefficiency in that very early intimate phase when you want to iterate on the product really, really fast. You want to have that extraordinary customer empathy. You want to translate that into the product, right? And doing that with a nine time zone delay, right. that's also hard, right? right? So this is where like building a company is, is as much art as a science, right? Yeah. Where it's like you have to do it in exactly the right moment or you're going to be held back. Yeah. I have, a, I think, a very loaded question, big question that a lot of SaaS companies are struggling. So you guys obviously disrupted an industry, uh, or you were one of them that were disrupting this industry, fighting the big giants. What's your piece of advice for other SaaS founders that are in similar position, the David Goliath exercise? Like, how do you take on this challenge when somebody else has set the standard? Yeah, so so I'll, I'll say two things, A and B on that, right? So so A, first of all, um, so, so I think there's only two things that are certain in life right? Um, one is we're all going to die. And the second one is we're all going to compete with Amazon. And I'm not even sure about the former, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and I, this is another example where I, I think specifically the Swedes, like they don't really yet understand just how impactful Amazon is, 
now, of course, Amazon is just about to enter the Swedish market, right? And just the dominating effect of Amazon on any industry, like it's it's very hard to to overestimate it. It's it just it's just off the charts, right? And so that's kind of the first thing. I just realized that we live in a world of these big platforms, right? And so you will compete with them, right? So that's kind of the A. The B side, like what what I've tried to do is that, like I think the most successful strategy here is you need to find a specific angle, a specific vector that embodies two different things at the same time. It has to be something that is really valuable to customers, right? But that is countercultural to the big brands, to the big platforms, right? So for example, in our world, um, it for, for a big CIO at a big company, right? It, is, it, it really is a concern to go all in on a single vendor, right? right? And so if you want to procure a database, if that database only runs on Amazon, that's a problem. Now, you probably love it if you're a big CIO, you love Amazon because it gives you all of these benefits and it's this massive platform, breadth of features, like all of that kind of stuff, right? But it is a concern that all your data is going to be locked in to a database that only exists on the Amazon platform because you then you have vendor lock-in, right? So what we do with our with our database is that it runs on all clouds, right? So our SaaS service, you know, we, we have both an on-prem product and a SaaS service, right? Our SaaS service runs on all clouds eventually. You know, of course, the on-prem can be deployed on all, all clouds and in, you know, your own data centers in hybrid environments and so on and so forth, right? That's, a, that's really valuable to our customers. It's also extremely countercultural to Amazon. Like Amazon taking their own services and porting to their competitors, that's never going to happen. And at least it's not going to happen as long as they're the leaders, right? right? Like that's something that maybe the runner-up platforms might do, but not the leader, right? And so that's that combination of a vector that is very valuable to the customer base, very valuable to the market, but counter-cultural or counter-strategic to the big platforms, right? And if you can find that kind of vector, you need to put all your wood behind that arrow and go all in on that. So that I think would be my kind of high-level um, kind of uh, tip, if you will, when it comes to competing with the big brands. Excellent tip. Yeah. Be bold and be brave. Exactly. And, and Emil, I'm really glad that we got this opportunity to catch up a bit. I hope that we can get some more time uh, to talk about, you know, the last 20 years. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I would like to end the show with just asking you if you have a recommendation of someone else that we should invite as a guest to the show. Do you have sort of a, a tip for us? So, so, so this is where we're all three of us are in Malmo, right? And yeah. so this is probably an, an 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 obvious thing because of kind of uh, his star power locally in Malmo. But literally, my lunch that started two minutes ago is with Hampus Jakobsen, um, which of course is a, a star local uh, hero uh, with a very global perspective. So that would be my very top of mind since. I'm already in my head apologizing to him from for, for running late. Exactly. B- blame us and make sure he shows up here for the next week. I'll pitch him on the podcast. <laughs> sure. But say hi from us and uh, <laughs> it would be great if you could introduce us. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. Wow, what a guy. I, I must admit that the, listening in to, to the two of you guys and my mind is, is expanded, really. And <laughs> I'm, I'm looking over here at Thomas and I can see you're just a big smile now this this was fun for you right yeah 
I'm perhaps not an alpha geek. I might be a beta or a gamma geek, but uh, you know, it was really inspiring and also I learned learned a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of bold statements, big messages, sometimes maybe even contradicting what's considered to be the right or normal way. Um, so what, what is the big takeaway for you after an episode like this? Well, some of the things that I found interesting was actually that go to US first. Uh, US is the most important market and also easier uh, than many of the European markets. So even if it feels like it's further away, go there, go there sooner than later. And also uh, that they are so much uh, more advanced when it comes to go to market. Yeah, and I think we all know that being successful in the US, once you've cracked the American market, you're in a good spot. Yeah. Uh, but I think the message from him is that, you know, don't wait too long uh, for, for the US. Essentially, go directly to the US, more or less ignore everything else, because that will come after the fact. Once you're successful in the US, that comes by default. I think that probably flips some of the, the ideas that a lot of SaaS companies are running with being dominant in Europe and so on first, upside down a little bit. Yeah, and something else that re really resonated with me was when he talked about you know, empathy for the customer. And I think it's so good when you actually, as they did, created a product that they wanted to use themselves. So right. they had, of course, high standard and they knew well what problems they needed to solve. And uh, when you understand the customer to that extent, I believe that you truly can create a great product. And I feel that that is really inspiring. And, and I mean, you should really focus on customer empathy you can't do it too much so i think that's a good lesson learned here yeah definitely lots lots of exciting and and and, and really interesting statements here that i think i personally at least will will take to heart and some of them i will go home and try to dissect and digest and uh i hope to get hold of uh, emil here soon to to take a round two on some of these topics so uh, very exciting uh, episode learned a lot today yeah so great. And uh, I mean, if you want to know more about the podcast, you can head over to sasnordic.com, our website, and you find the podcast everywhere where podcast exists. So that will be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, all the other players. Uh, and if you want to contact us, you can reach out at our email address, contact at sasnordic.com, and also through your favorite social media. We are there in all channels at uh, the handle SAS Nordic and uh, I think you should uh, sign up for our LinkedIn page Facebook page and so on so we can keep in touch and we look forward to uh, uh, future episodes as well we have a, a lot of good guests in the pipeline and if you have any suggestions of guests and topics please reach out to us and uh, continue to embark and follow us on this journey with the Nordic SaaS companies. So with that, uh, we're finished for this time and I hope you have a really great week. Bye-bye. <laughs>